Before we begin, I'd like to offer a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, as we gather together again today to reflect upon the path that you have led us on, allow us to keep our hearts and our minds open and receptive to your call, whether it's in the past, in the present, and as we move together toward the future. All this we ask in your son's holy name, amen. So I mentioned this to Rich Milligan, I'll share it with you. I'm hoping that his parents skid to a halt soon because I did a little bit of extra unintended research. And they're here, uh, based upon one of the questions that they had last week. So, welcome. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to week two of Swords and Plowshares. And ultimately, as explained last week, we are looking at strains of history as they ultimately weave into the American tapestry, uh, reinforcing two things. One, the desire to realize God's kingdom here on earth, the peaceable kingdom as revealed in this one of 61 versions of Edward Hicks's peaceable kingdom painting, uh, but also uh, hand in hand with that, a uh, plurality in religious practice that uh, conscious, conscious uh, choice is protected. And that's a far and different thing from what prevailed throughout all of history up through the 15 and 1600s in Europe. And so today, thanks to Phyllis and Jack, I went back and checked on a little bit of American history as it happened in Florida. As was mentioned, many of you might have been to St. Augustine and the fort that remains there. Well, one year before St. Augustine was built in 1565, uh, 64, no, 1565, St. Augustine was built. One year before, French Huguenots, Protestants, built a fort 35 miles north, and in part, it was to help control the seafaring lanes. It was built on a bluff overlooking the mouth of uh, the river there, Jacksonville, what's now Jacksonville. Um, but of course, the Spanish wanted to control the seas, and they built St. Augustine, and in 1565, the same year that they built, be- beginning, began to build St. Augustine, uh, they led an overland force and caught the French fort, the French Huguenot fort, by surprise, such that, and this is one of two accounts that, that is extant. This one is from the French perspective, from one of the few survivors. Uh, that it was at dawn, most everybody in the uh, French fort was sleeping, and there was practically no mercy shown by the Spanish who were coming from St. Augustine. Led by this gentleman, whose name escapes me in the moment, This caught me off guard when encountering, this is a, a Spanish padre, he's a chaplain who's with the St. Augustine uh, forces, and it was not just about politics and positioning, it was not just about controlling the waterways. Uh, for him and for his commander, it was a religious affront that the French Huguenots had set up a fort and would otherwise uh, be introducing their version of Christianity to the natives. So to read side by side the accounts, one by a French survivor, this one by the bragging bragging chaplain from the Spanish who left maybe 10 people who professed to be Catholics alive, but everybody else, even after they'd surrendered, uh, was killed. So in the larger expanse of North American history, Uh, of what became the United States of America. This is one of the few instances where uh, one colony, um, for religious purposes, is fighting with another one. Granted, they were just toeholds on the uh, Florida coast, but still, as uh, Jack Rose posed last week, it is an element of American history. This is 1565. Meanwhile, the next century, up in Massachusetts, we have people who don't want to conform to the very strict religious uh, mindset being practiced by the Bay Colony. So Roger Williams, among others, Anne Hutchinson, uh, 
leave out into the wilds, and Roger Williams is befriended by the natives who live in what's now the Portsmouth, Newport area, and finds them amenable to having him uh, live with them. Meanwhile, Anne Hutchinson leaves behind the fairly comfortable life in Boston when she's unable to practice her religion as she sees fit. All this is germane because, as last week, uh, in 1642, those instructions from the Swedish queen to her new colonial governor, it was the first time in any of the American letters that freedom of religion is uh, put onto paper as a protected right. The second time that this appears, and it appears independently because obviously, even as this is 20 years later, um, that the folks in Massachusetts and what became Rhode Island, they have no idea what the written instructions were to a, a Swedish governor 20 years previously, 400 miles away. So this is the second time in all of American letters that a founding document puts forward the need to protect and preserve the individual's right to honor their conscience and uh, greet their God as they would see fit and that the state and nobody else has a right to interfere with that. So this is also the first time in American history what be, you know, the colonial history, that one of the oppressed groups having come to America to escape oppression in Europe treats other dissenters with the grace that they themselves uh, were, were denied back in Europe and that, what do you know, perversely, that they're denying folks here in America once they have a colony here. So, Williams, much to the consternation of the folks in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, established good relations with the natives, uh, traded with them equitably. Newport will have significance uh, in next week as well because the, the spark, or if you will, to stick with a, a seasonal metaphor, the seed that was planted uh, back in 1660s. It bears fruit later on as, like Philadelphia too, it was one of the few places that in its undergirding laws that freedom of religion was protected. That in other places uh, they were virulently anti-Catholic or anti-other, but in what became Newport, that uh, and providence that they protected uh, the individual's right to worship as they would see fit. And what's interesting in going back to some of these documents is how the political thought is a mirror of the religious expression that in order for a society to work at its healthiest that society ought to protect the differences of opinion, especially at, at a primary level when it comes to relating to God. So this is before Maryland has done the same in a blanket fashion. But meanwhile, in New England, the Massachusetts Bay Colony chiefly, that there is an ongoing uh, steadfast persecution of the others. For some reason, as in England, that the Society of Friends, the few adherents that there were here in the colonies, they were a burr under the saddle or a pea under the mattress. They otherwise rubbed the established church, Church of England, very much the wrong way. And this is in the 1660s, 1665, that in Massachusetts, they called it New England, but chiefly Massachusetts, that these were among the sufferings, if you will, of people who did not want to practice Church of England. Uh, banished, killed outright, ears cut off, hands burned, lashes. 
This is all for wanting to practice their faith to address their God in a different fashion than the orthodoxy of that colony. Yeah, kind of severe fellows in a severe place. At the same time, Harvard College, which was founded by the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the fourth building that it built was to house Native Americans who were being sent there to learn Christian religion, to learn Church of England Christian religion. And so, again, this is in the 1660s, the same time that there's the ongoing persecution of other Europeans who would wish to practice a different faith than the Anglican, that an extreme effort was made to translate the Old and the New Testament into a tongue that the Native Americans there in that area of New England could understand and to try and find young men from various tribes to send them on scholarship to Harvard so that they could be uh, Christianized. Yes, Chris. We have a microphone right there. Microphone. Sure. Uh, the, the, the question has to do with uh, how does economic or class structure fit into this? Well, the Bay Colony was originally a charter company, and so it was designed to make money. Ultimately, it became a crown colony. Uh, by and large, the original settlers were all from one economic stripe, um, and that's why when dissension happened, it was that much more of an affront, that you are of the same, if you will, class as we are, and yet you're not following as we would. But at the time, the economy, if you will, was very rudimentary. I mean, they, they were living off the land. S certainly early on, they were dependent upon the goodwill of the natives to try and make it season to season. But uh, even in that... Uh, woodcut that had Anne Hutchinson and her Boston home, it is frontier living. So, so one's economy was chiefly one's farm and what, what little else you might produce to take to town. I mean, Boston was a couple hundred people. It wasn't a city of, of any note. It was the biggest that, that the Northeast Seaboard had for a while. I don't know if that gets to where you want to go. Well, I, I, again, I, at the time, most of the colonists who are in this area of New England are middle class, middle to upper class professionals who'd sold their property, by and large, what they had in England and Germany, and come here and were planting themselves. So they, they were of a stripe. It, it wasn't a very varied crowd um, in that regard. And yes, some of them were more highly educated than others, but it, it was a small band. I mean, it was, it was in the dozens when they began. And yes, more people came over the next 40 years until this happened. Um, but by and large, their economy was not terribly complex. It was agrarian. It had to do with, with fishing to a little bit. And with what little money they had, they would buy finished goods brought over from England. This is 1660, 65 actually. Off the top of my head, I would guess maybe 2,500-ish. Even by the time of the American Revolution, 100 years later, 100 plus years later, Boston wasn't over 15,000 people, one five. And in fact, in 1682, which we'll sort of get to today, that's when Philadelphia, if you will, was founded by William Penn. 
and with the arrival of several thousand Welsh and others to this confluence of two rivers, within 10 years, Philadelphia, which did not exist, within 10 years, Philadelphia had surpassed both New York and Boston in terms of population. So both Boston and even New York with its harbor were kind of static. They'd grown and then they stopped. So, 1642, the instructions from Queen Christina of Sweden to her governor of the new Sweden colony. That's the first time that religious freedoms are written down as protection in, uh, where were we? In 1663, in the Charter for Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. They weren't called colonies at the time, they were called plantations. That's the, the second time in American letters that religious freedom is protected. Here's the third time. So by this point in the 1670s that New Jersey, which is considered East Jersey and West Jersey, but today it's what we think of as New Jersey, uh, West Jersey, the southern portion, if you will, was a grant to Quakers. Before William Penn, it was given over to Quakers. And so in their founding documents, here is the third time in American letters that the freedom to practice one's religion and in fact to punish somebody who would try and deny or degrade somebody else's religion is put into writing. This is something which William Penn does draw on a few years later as he gets his grant for what's now Pennsylvania and Delaware and he's writing the initial frame of government for his colony. And again, the point from, uh, from last week to take away was there was chaos in Europe in the 16th century. And the old order was whoever your prince was, whoever your king was, determined your faith. Even as now Bibles are appearing in German and in English and uh, people are for the first time encountering the word of God firsthand. That is part of the overall breakup of the monopoly, if you will, that autocrats had, that princes and kings enjoyed. That when the mind is opened to experience God's word in a one-to-one fashion, the people call into question, why, why is a king deciding this on my behalf? So part of what was happening on a larger scale across Europe was this. A lot of it was posturing and wanting to control territory for for money, but at its core, it was how does one face God as an individual? So here for the third time in the pantheon of American letters, uh, the right to practice one's faith as one sees fit is given the rule of law. Alrighty, so in the 16th century, in, I'm sorry, in the 17th century, 1600s, in England, it was a troublesome time as a monarch falls, there's a glorious revolution, religions change from the top down. This gentleman, is, he was a captain um, in the Royal Navy who ultimately rose to admiral His name is William Penn. If the name sounds familiar, it's because he had a son named after him. But it's thanks to his putting the crown into his debt that his son's name lives on and that we're telling this particular story. So if you can imagine, if you control the seas, you control quite a lot. And so whether it was fighting the Dutch, whether it was uh, fighting Spain, whether it was fighting anybody. If you had a fleet and the loyalty of the person commanding that fleet, you had influence. This particular seaman, he was adept at reading political winds and at various times uh, he supported the monarch, James II. Uh, Then he supported uh, Cromwell. 
uh, when the winds were blowing the other way, such that when the monarchy was restored and needed a loan um, from the plunder that he'd amassed as admiral of one of the British Navy fleets, because when you take Jamaica, when you literally um, take the port and otherwise take possession of that colony, that as the admiral of the fleet that's victorious, you get to pocket a little bit of it, which is what he did. Um, I mean, he sent some back to London, but he, he kept a fair bit, such that when the monarchy was restored and didn't have money, um, and parliament wasn't wanting to grant uh, new taxes or such, that he loaned the crown what was 45,000 pounds then, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars would be the equivalent of today, but it, it, it changed the game for Charles and allowed him uh, with some assurity to take the throne and believe that he would succeed at it. So he is an establishment, establishment person, very content in the Church of England, and cannot understand when his 22-year-old son who he's had private tutored for years and then gone off to college on the continent, comes back with this story of conversion. So the 22-year-old William Penn Jr. comes to his dad and says, hi, I don't want to go into the Navy. I don't want to go into law. I have had an inner light experience, the Holy Spirit. And even as thanks to his father's uh, rise in rank, and the indebtedness now to the crown, and the, the way paved open for uh, William Penn Jr. to serve in the court in any fashion that he would see fit, William Penn doesn't really want to embrace that future. So his dad had had a hard scrabble life at sea. In fact, at one point, had never set foot on land for over a year, even a dock. He hadn't, he hadn't gone off ships in over a year. So he was not pleased that his son took a different light. So at the time, the Society of Friends was perceived as a bit out there in how they expressed, how they experienced their religion. As some of you might already know that um, today, perhaps not here on Market Street, but in some Quaker meeting houses that there is no order of worship, simply somebody introduces uh, or welcomes people at a, an appointed time, and should the Spirit move somebody to share a Bible verse or a thought, they're welcome to do so. Upwards of an hour later, even if nobody's spoken, the, the meeting might be called to a close. Um, so with that, with the Word of God in their own language, uh, people in England and Wales were feeling transformed and looking for ways to express themselves that in the church rights, I'll, I'll get, uh, in the church rights of the Church of England, which was more performed in the Roman Catholic tradition uh, for the attendees than it was a participatory thing, uh, that a lot of people, a surprising number of people uh, for the powers that be, uh, were gravitating towards the Society of Friends. You had a question, Chris? Yes. Yes. And in fact, um, more so than, than, than most of the sects that came up, that uh, there were some strong females. And of course, the strongest, her name escapes me right, right now, but um, in the Quaker, what became the Quaker tradition, um, it wasn't about learnedness, it was about expressing one's own inner journey. And so people would keep journals and they were published and they would then circulate. So this is how I experienced Christ. And whether it was George Fox, who was who's considered the founder of uh, the Society of Friends, or, or others, uh, that, and one of them was a woman, English, uh, that these journals published as books uh, were profoundly influential of course, in the popular notion, and this is a woodcut, if you can imagine, political cartoon of the late 17th century um, that is taking to task, albeit gently, um, some of the idiosyncrasies of the Society of Friends. Um, they used thee and thou rather than me and you. 
Um, they were formal. They would not take their hat off even for the king. They would not swear an oath of allegiance because swearing is against God's will. Um, that kind of stuff ran them afoul of the authorities. So if you're not going to uh, go to the local Church of England, uh, that's bad enough. But if you won't uh, put your hand on a Bible and swear your allegiance to the king, that is transgressive. And it's peculiar that you won't take your hat off. Somehow, navigating all this, the young William Penn Jr., who's in the center frame bent over, um, was able, after his father's death in 1670, to put forward a claim to Charles, the new king. And as the decade wore on, as the 1670s wore on, the idea of the crown being able to discharge its debt to the now deceased Admiral William Penn by granting land on this faraway continent to the sun began to gain traction. So by 1681, it is a done deal such that Charles is seated there holding a scroll, uh, commits to give young William Penn a swath of land between this median and that me or meridian, uh, essentially between the existing New, New York um, and Lord Baltimore's grant. They didn't understand quite where things were at the time, but they knew where river mouths were. So between here and there, heading west, that'll be yours. For the princely sum of one-fifth of all the silver, one-fifth of all the gold found in the colony, and two beaver pelts a year. And, yeah, two. There wasn't much gold or silver, but the two beaver pelts were quasi-religiously turned over every year, even by Penn's successors, because they didn't want to lose their charter. So with this, William Penn becomes one of two proprietary uh, colonies, the head of one of the two proprietary colonies in North America. The other was Maryland with Lord Baltimore. So this is a copy of the charter that the king gives to William Penn. In essence, it spells out that, you know, here's the parameters, here's what you need to, uh, to do to be in accord with me, and don't get out of line because I can revoke this. William Penn then, oh, okay, th th this is in plainer English. This was the only uh, mention of religion in any aspect in the King's Charter to William Penn. But more importantly, once William Penn has this in hand and he begins the process of trying to fill up what is a largely empty parcel of land, which he's not been to, He has a fairly inspirational and detailed vision of how government and society should function. So this is the first draft of what he called the frame or frames of government for his province of Pennsylvania. And no, he didn't name it after himself. The king decided to name it after his father, but of course they shared the same name, so naturally it reflected on William Penn Jr. But here, given some time and reflection, that he puts forth a lengthy, like 40 itemized uh, long uh, constitution of sorts that spells out how the uh, provincial council and the governor will, will have co-equal branches and there'll be a judiciary. So all the stuff that one might later look for in colonial uh, constitutions as well as the U.S. Federal Constitution in 1787, that there are elements that can be traced back to this. Uh, but m most importantly for what we're talking about is that the young William Penn, because he was in his, he was barely 30 at this point, um, that in his 
frame of government, and this is the finished written out version, in the frame of government as it mentions on the handout, that once again, and this is at the outset, that the freedom to practice one's own conscience is protected by the force of law. So King Charles, hallelujah, had given Penn a, a blank check to beaver pelts a year. And Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> These things, I, I have questions too, and sometimes I save them down, and most of the time it's just a rabbit hole. <laughs> but here, as with the uh, Rhode Island and, and Providence plantations, here, a few years later, 20 years later, at, at the founding of a fresh colony that has supplanted the new Sweden colony of earlier in the 17th century, that here the idea that other people's religion or their non-religion should be peaceably and permanently protected. Now for me, all of this stuff about religious freedom is a direct uh, arrow to swords and to plowshares, that until the individual takes ownership, is able to take ownership of their relationship with God uh, that they cannot, they don't have the power to go against the state. Um, and so therefore, uh, they, even if they were peaceably minded, that they, they could not affect change. But once, once the freedom of conscience begins to be uh, a basic right that is protected in law, that then, because kings aren't determining at will whether it's for religious or political or economic gain, what an entire nation is going to do that the individual can speak up and speak out. Yes? That, was, that is specifically uh, theistic and not Christian. Is that deliberate on their part? Uh, on William Penn's part, yes. That even as he is a society of friends and his family is Church of England, that he, he frames the language in such a way that so long as you are addressing God and recognizing God, that he's not going to trample on that relationship and he doesn't want you to trample on his. So, it, yes, it's taken a step back from specific Christianity but again, for me, the, the protection of religious freedom is what then becomes a springboard for turning sword swords into plowshares. Yes, David. I noticed in one of the earlier um, charter mm -hmm. excerpts, though, that it, when it came to the natives, they were talking about, you know, evangelizing and Christianizing the savages. So yes, and, and there wasn't freedom of, you know, expression of their religion. Right, and and. In the instructions in 1642 by the Swedish queen to the governor of what becomes Pennsylvania two, two, er, two generations later, that likewise in William Penn's initial frame of government, that uh, respecting the beliefs and the land claims of the natives is one of the enumerated things, whereas in, in other places they might want to preach to the heathen, they might want to convert them, and in fact, Massachusetts Bay with Harvard College, that was an active thing that they were doing or trying to do. And whether it was intentional or not by William Penn, because I, I don't think that he had knowledge of what the Swedish crown had done 40 years before. It, I mean, they didn't have Google, they didn't you know, have a compendium of, oh, pull off the shelf, what have people written about before um, for this kind of stuff? Uh, but. In, in his, in what became the, uh, the, this and the subsequent two frames of government from Penn, that uh, buying land from the natives, doing an honest deal with them, was core to his conception of how man should live with man. 
So uh, unlike in most of the other colonies, there was not this uh, portraying of the other as uncivilized. For, for Penn, he thought that they were the lost tribe of Israel, that because of their, their hardiness, because of, of their smooth complexions, because of their, their skin color, that he thought that they were a Semitic people. And, and he only learned this upon arrival, uh, he only spoke about this after he came. So part of his approaching them was he thought that they were one of God's chosen people, even as they were living differently and perhaps benightedly. Um, but he, he accorded them an unusual degree of respect such that the, the saying is that the treaty that he made initially with the natives there is the only one that, that was never broken by both sides in all of American history and its relation with the, with the indigenous peoples. So, actually, in 1682, when Penn arrived, Philadelphia did not exist. Philadelphia was uh, caves dug into the shoreline of the two rivers, chiefly the Delaware River, um, and kind of lean-tos. So, this rather fanciful, but lovely, uh, portrait would be an anachronism because they didn't have any structures yet to welcome William Penn in the fall of 1682 when he arrived. Um, but it, it gives a sense of what it was like otherwise. So William Penn has been, William Penn Jr. now has this blank land and a blank check of sorts from his king and now he needs to convince other people to come because the only way that Penn is going to realize any money himself is if it's populated. So part of William Penn's unrealized legacy um, is that he was a real estate speculator uh, of, of the grandest sort and he had high in intentions and he delivered more than, than perhaps you know, most people since in that Penn went to Germany and Holland and uh, Wales and he met with disaffected communities. People who were feeling persecuted where they lived, uh, society friends, members in Wales where they were turned out of their houses, um, uh, Mennonites in Krefeld, Germany, uh, among others, and he promised this glorious virgin land um, that they could move entire communities to and he would sell them extant plots. And with two communities of note, he did that and they succeeded in transplanting from Europe to America. Whether they were original utopian colonies, we'll leave that to others to decide. Uh, one of them was a group of Mennonites, as mentioned. Uh, they settled in what was called Germantown they had contiguous couple thousand acres um, in the mid-19th century before the American Civil War that uh, Philadelphia subsumed what had been a separate uh, municipality called Germantown. So now it's part of Philadelphia, but uh, as its name would suggest that the original Germantown was the German enclave where Germans, chiefly Mennonites, came and set up uh, businesses and spoke German, had, for all intents and purposes, their own courts to deal with in-house matters and practice their religion as they would see fit. Yes, Jerry. He arrived in July, and that's about the only time of year that it's not overcast in Pennsylvania, is July, August, and September. Like I said, he was a real estate salesman of, of the Grand Order. The, the, the New Sweden colony, which was founded in 1638, that those governor, gubernatorial instructions went to in 1642, that Swedes and Dutch along the Delaware and Schuylkill Rivers, at the time of Penn's arrival, might have been 1,000 or 1,200, might. 
So 24 ships of chiefly Welsh, but chiefly Quakers, arrive in the fall of 1682. So you have over 3,000, almost 4,000 people arriving, and there's no infrastructure to support them. There's no, no welcoming committee, even as William Penn's boat was named Welcome, uh, but he wasn't the first to get there. Um, and theirs is a very elemental existence beyond what one would expect if they'd arrived to Boston or Baltimore or New York now. So for him to write these glowing reports back, and he, he arrived in September of 1682, so this is almost a year later, um, and he brags about seeing the extremes of the weather having been here in the hottest and, and the coldest, and I can report to you that it's nothing as bad as it is in Scandinavia or the south of France. Um, but he, he's trying to get as many warm bodies to come over as possible because when they set up farms, as a proprietor, he gets a quit rent from them, an annual you know, tithing of sorts. Um, and, of course, if they find any gold or silver, one-fifth of that goes to the crown, but otherwise, anything between that and the two beaver pelts is profit for the proprietor. Now, in addition to the, the open spaces and the temperate climate, he promises r religious freedom, and that is the nectar that gets entire communities of Welsh, Quakers, and, and other sects from mainland Europe to decide that, yes, it is better for us to risk the open ocean and the frontier that is this North America um, than to stay here, where we will continue to be oppressed and not be able to, to gather or to express ourselves as we see fit. So in the fall of 1682, under the big tree, which in the early 20th century finally fell down, um, that William Penn gathered with the Sachem, S-A-C-H-E-M, um, who was the chief of the local Lenape, Lene Lenape tribe, to hammer out an agreement to buy all the land between this river and that river going back you know, as far as a man can, can walk in a day's time. And there were subsequent purchases over the, the next 20 years, uh, but significantly, this was, the, the tenor was set at the very beginning when the rather formal Quaker from England comes over and uh, barters with the indigenous peoples for the right to be there. This is the original treaty signed by Penn with that, I forget his name, I can never pronounce it even when I can remember it, uh, with the original native Lenape or Delaware Indian. And they agreed to, uh, to move their hunting grounds west for all intents and purposes. So, as mentioned last week, th this painter Edward Hicks, who in the early half first half of the 19th century uh, paints over the course of several decades 61 versions of this peaceable kingdom based upon the passage from uh, Isaiah that is there on the handout uh, that for him uh, each of them in the foreground has the child lying down you know, with the lamb and the lion and leading them but always in the background is a little reference, visual reference to the Penn Treaty with the Indians and the honor that was accorded both sides, by both sides in that and held fast for all generations to come. So, questions? Yes, Chris. I'm sorry. What were the name of the two rivers that they earlier said... Um, they defined it by... Um, sure. Um, for and they said navig na navigable. Navigable. So... What were the two rivers? Right. Um, the North River is what we would now call the Hudson River, and that was at the northern side of the Jerseys. The South River is what we now call the Delaware River, and that's on the south side of the Jerseys. And so in Charles's grant 
to William Penn, it was uh, between these rivers heading west. Obviously, the Jerseys, east and west, were already claimed. So on the western side of the South River, the Delaware River, and then heading west. Sure. And of course, the names change uh, with different peoples being in charge. Whoever writes the history gets to, to name the things for all time. And even if back in even General Washington's time during the fight for New York in the Revolutionary War, as often as not, they referred to that river as the South, I'm sorry, as the North River, as they called it the Hudson River. And the South, um, the North River was a holdover from when the Dutch controlled that area. And for them, the river in front of them was North and the, the southern river, the south river, was where their, their colony, their perception of their colony, ended um, in what's now Delaware, New Jersey. Because um, in order for commerce to happen, um, that you needed a navigable river. Like in Virginia, the James River uh, was only navigable to a certain point, and then there were rapids. And until they, they came with uh, flat boats or uh, a lock system that you couldn't get boats uh, with any kind of draft beyond those falls um, and if you didn't have river transport you couldn't bring your tobacco or your goods anywhere. You, you, there were no roads so the, the only means of transport except on foot would be to get it to some place where you could float it and if, if you could get it to a river and allow it to you know, float downstream controlling it then you could get it ultimately to a port and have it distributed. So for me, this is, it's germane to the journey which we've all taken in that uh, what, what happened in this one colony had an unusual influence on things which then happened for the colonies together. Because just like William Penn unknowingly inherited um, a region that had peaceable Indians, peaceable Native Americans by and large, and uh, several generations of Europeans interfacing with them in a humane and respectful fashion. So unlike New England or Virginia or South, um, or even New York, that there was not animosity between the arrivees and the natives. There weren't fortified areas. Um, and so his notion of a mutually respectful uh, adult relationship with the indigenous peoples was one that, when it met reality, it wasn't challenged. Um, it was uh, verified. If he tried to do the same thing, in Connecticut or Massachusetts or Virginia, he could well have met with heartache and the Enterprise uh, would have seen the Welsh Quakers having to decide, do they fight in their own defense of their homes or do they run and jump in the river? Um, but his, his good fortune was that the place that he was granted uh, was not only fertile, but it was, uh, it was uncontested, even as th there was a, a border skirmish, at least with the surveyors, regarding Maryland. Yes, David. What was the, how, was the, how was the communication made between, back in Europe now, hmm? you're talking with the communication between Quakers and Anabaptists, and you know, how did the word get out? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, right. Uh, he himself, uh, he came over in 1682, and before he, he did, he did a tour in 81 into 82 and met with a lot of community leaders. Um, one of the first things done uh, was a fairly detailed map of the region that showed where first purchasers' lots were, but also you know, what was still available. And that was in 1685. And it's a, a massive, like, six-by-seven-foot map in the original, but it was, it was printed in London and then circulated as, you know, a, a real estate map. I mean, it was, it was a, a brochure of its day, and then with 
the, the, the letters that he'd write, which become broadsides. You know, come one, come all, you can be yourself, and you just have to, you know, pay your taxes, and we'll, we'll leave you alone. It, it was a golden invitation for a lot of people. Did he do that, though, in England, and yes. Switzerland, and Germany? Switzerland, I don't know. So I, Um, during his time, I don't know if, if they reached out to the Anabaptists specifically. I know that uh, by the 1720s that you have an entire flood uh, of uh, 20 or, or more different German and Swiss sects that use Philadelphia as the port of entry and then the colony as at least a first settling stop before they consider the next move. Yes? Um, that he, in general, he wished that, that they were more accommodating, but since they weren't, that his colony was going to benefit by their obstinance and by their persecu persecutions. So, soon after arrival, a trial happens, which 12 good men are chosen, and he, is, he, he presides as the judge. This trial is over somebody being accused of being a witch. In truth, it was a descendant of the Swedes practicing her quasi-Lutheran, pietistic way, um, superstitious, it seems, and a, a new, newly arrived Englander who has adjoining property. And so the behind the scenes is two clash of cultures and somebody coveting somebody else's land, but the charge is that this woman was practicing witchcraft. Okay, it wasn't expressly against the law in the frame of government as just set forward. However, um, th the charge is serious enough that they convene a hearing, a, a jury trial. So in his jurisprud jurisprudence, jurisprudence, in his wisdom, he, he leads the jury to find the defendant guilty of being a witch, but not guilty of practicing witchcraft. So a fine is levied, and she's asked, please don't do whatever you're doing before to cheese off your neighbor. And her name was Margaret Matson, and this was 10 years before Salem. The, th there's a trial of a witch, of a supposed witch, and she's actually found guilty in the, in the record of being a witch but found not guilty of practicing witchcraft, which for Penn was the allowance to give her grace and to tell the family, just watch her, will you? And it was 100 pounds, which was serious money, um, but they were glad to pay it because otherwise this region might have the notoriety of Salem, but thankfully more, more prudent minds prevailed. Andrew, yes, the... Business arrangement that William Penn made with King Charles mm -hmm. involved the granting of land to William Penn. And in one of your documents, one of your slides refers to him as the proprietor. Yes, that was his title. So he, he owned this land to himself. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was his land. And then he made other business arrangements with the natives and acquired more land. Mm -hmm. Now, this is happening 100 years before the United States is found, founded. So when we get to the 100-year anniversary of William Penn's arrival, and we now have a state or a commonwealth of Pennsylvania, if you know, can you explain how that transition was made just on the issue of what became state land? Sure. Did William Penn have successors who got compensated in some way, or what uh, was the process? Sure. As set forward in the proprietary grant from the Crown, that uh, William Penn Jr. and any of his heirs or assignees, um, that this is theirs in perpetuity. So William Penn has uh, several sons. They, in sequence, become proprietor grandson becomes proprietor. It's the grandson who's actually the proprietor at the outset of the American Revolution. And until 1775, that it's still a crown, I'm sorry, still a, a proprietary colony with a pen as the name proprietor. Now, of course, from the 1720s when a certain 
teenager from Boston arrived to begin a printing business, um, some guy named Franklin, um, that there's been an increasing push by the citizens of Philadelphia and such to eliminate this proprietor. That they, they, they want to be a direct crown colony. And in fact, when the adult Franklin is an agent for uh, the provincial assembly in London, that one, one of the things he's pushing for is to ease out, figure out some payment scheme for the grandson um, such that it can be just be a straight crown colony. But it's not until the eve of the American Revolution when outside of the proprietary structure that Sam Adams from Boston helps to gin up a constitutional convention for a Pennsylvania constitution that the proprietary colony uh, in any legal sense ends. A uh, and that last pen, he, he went back to England and I'm sure he pressed claims, but he, he never received anything uh, after the American Revolution to pay him for the colony that was lost. So swords into plowshares, again, from, from the chaos and top down, the, the king decides the religion of his kingdom, that these protections that uh, are, are enshrined uh, increasingly, one generation upon the next, um, in some of our, our founding colonial documents, to me, are, are the springboard for what happens in 1787 when the federal, I'm sorry, it was called, federal was a bad word at the time. It was called the Grand Convention in 1787. They didn't want to give anybody uh, the willies in advance. Um, but I know that, that I've taken for granted all my life the ability to go to the church, the house of worship of my choosing, or not, um, and to encounter people today for whom that same freedom um, is, is, the, is the breath of life, and yet for many of us, we don't think twice about it. I, I'm always grateful when I go back and spend time with documents like this. Oh, I will share this. So here we have, again, his original draft with his amendations and notations in the margin. I'll, I'll brag here. Um, when, when you're holding in your hands, albeit fixed in plexiglass, the final committee draft of the U.S. Constitution written in the hand of James Wilson, who was one of the five committee members tasked with writing the document to then bring to the full convention for a vote. And this, this document, it's oversized, it's maybe two and a half by two and a half feet with four columns. Columns one and columns three are, as the committee has agreed on in their working sessions, columns one, columns three, the U.S. Constitution written out. In columns two and four, which were otherwise blank, you have in four different pens, you know, quill pens, the handwriting of the other four committee members as they're changing words in this living document that is the U.S. draft, or U.S. Constitution in draft form, as an editor, as an historian. It is something that, it literally made me weep to, to, to hold this. And the, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania has it in a very secure facility in Philadelphia. It's not behind plexi, it's not, you know, behind bulletproof glass, it's not on display. But to appreciate that like this, that our founding documents are living, breathing things, that even for the people who are conceiving them and, and writing them to submit them to the world, that there's changes. I love it as an editor, and for me, on my journey as an historian, it was one of those <gasps> gasp kind of moments, um, and then to have a, a family dinner with um, a very literalist uncle of mine who's an original constitutionist. So, well, he and, and Judge Scalia would, would be in much accord, but to realize that even for James Wilson and the other four members of the, that committee, that it was, okay, the best we can do in this moment with language, subject to change. Um, the other end, this is the novelist in me, just FYI. Last week, my application for a national endowment for the arts 
literature fellowship was accepted, which is a big vetting process. They don't decide or announce anything until December, but just to be welcomed by that body as a contender. <sighs> I could exhale. So, right, right. 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 With that, thank you all, and look forward to seeing you next week. Details to follow. <laughs>